Welcome to the Fine Wine Confidential Podcast, where we explore the history of Virginia wine growing during the past 40 years. This is Fred Reno, your host. Join me on my journey as I tell a story of an amazing growth in wine quality that's being produced here in Virginia through the interviews with prominent winery owners, winemakers, and viticulturists. In their own words, you, the listener, will hear about the challenges they faced and the vision behind their commitment to wine growing. You will then see why Virginia is, in my opinion, the most exciting wine growing state in the country today. Get ready to pique your curiosity, eventually your palate, by tasting some of Virginia's finest at your earliest opportunity. This is Fred Reno, your host at the Fine Wine Confidential Podcast. Welcome back. I'm excited to share this next episode with you. I will interview Jay Yeomans, the founder of the Capital Wine School in Washington, D.C. Jay has overseen conducting the Virginia Governor's Cup Wine Competition for over a decade now. He's a very accomplished wine educator with many credentials, but no more important in my view than he has achieved the world-recognized title of Master of Wine. Because at the time of this interview, in early September of 2020, our conversation took place via Zoom. Yeah, we all got Zoom, didn't we? As a result, the audio quality is not as good as I would have liked. I think you've all found that out yourself. However, the content is what counts, and Jay has many insights into the Virginia wine industry, which I felt were important to get on the record. He provides another perspective for my journey to tell the story of the past 40 years of quality wine growing here in the Old Dominion. So, hey, Jay, good morning. How are you? I'm great, Fred. Good to be with you. Well, thank you for your time this morning. So let's start at the beginning. How'd you get into the wine business and uh, what drove you? Why? Why? Well, I was uh, going to school at Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I became really good friends with a guy named Gibson Smith, whose family had had an old monastery that they were kind of redoing. There were like 15 rooms. Anyway, I, I needed a place to stay and they, friend Gibson invited me to come stay with him and his family. And they were all into wine. At night, you know, with dinner or playing pool, we'd drink wine and that's how I got the bug. Later on, I uh, w- went to work for Gibson. He was managing a restaurant in Winston-Salem called the Salem Cotton Company. I went to work for him as kind of his wine director and sommelier and never never wanted to do anything else. How long ago was that? Uh, this, is back in the, this is back in the early 80s, 81, 82, something like that. Well, yeah. it was a different landscape then, wasn't it, my friend? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I... I tell you, Fred, I spent most of my time working, working the floor in this restaurant, trying to convince people that California wine was just as good as European wine. And, and it's, so, it's so interesting because now, you know, the parallel is we're busy trying to convince people that Virginia wine is as good as California and French wine. And uh, so it's, re- it's really come full circle. Well, it certainly has. Well, I wanted to ask you, as I referenced in the introduction, the uh, Master of Wine Diploma, I'd love you to take a few minutes and explain to people the rigor of this, because boy, when I looked at it, it, to me, it looks like the most difficult, quite possibly the most rewarding of all the wine diplomas that are out there. 
it's um you know the the master of wine credential was created by the institute of masters of wine back in the 50s and really um the the whole reason why they were created was to create knowledgeable people that were really watchdogs of the industry you know wines always had a lot of fraud as you can imagine you know back in the 50s they were still shipping bordeaux and barrels and and merchants were bottling their wines uh and then selling to customers and as you can imagine there were a lot of opportunities for doing things that weren't so uh legal let's say and and so the mw credential was really created as as you know not a watchdog but somebody somebody that that knew the industry and that when they tasted something they knew something was off if there was if if it wasn't you know what it was supposed to be it's continued to morph today it's you know back then it was strictly a british trade credential and then they started opening it up to people around the world now there's like some 400 mws around the world there's there's like 40 in the US and Canada but the exam is 40 uh, it's 5 days long first day you know you you show up in the morning and you you taste 12 wines blind the first day is always white wines and then the the first and second day you come back in the afternoon and you write about uh wine making grape growing the pr- you know the production of wine the second day in the morning you, you taste 12 red wines blind the third day you do kind of a mixed bag, which is usually fortified, sparkling, dessert, but but they can throw anything at you. Rose, they can throw throw another flight of red wines. I think the big misconception about the MW exam is that they, you know, there's a, an entire day devoted to the business of wine, marketing, brand building, understanding how wine is sold and all over the world. And the fifth day is usually um, one essay that you write for about three hours, and it's usually on on topics that are relevant to what's going on in the world today, and it might be genetically modified grape. I think you might see an essay this next exam about smoke tank and, you know, how it affects the topic. industry. So. How, how long did it take to get to prepare for these this exam? It took me eight years to get through it. It's it's interesting. I, I I teach the diploma here at the school, the Wine Spirit Education Trust. There's four levels, and I teach all four levels. But I actually never took the dipl- I never took the WSET because it wasn't available in the U.S. So when I got into the EMW program, I was just I was trying to read everything I could get my hands on, but I was spending a lot of time on the wrong things. I passed the tasting pretty easily and. It took me another four or five attempts to get through the theory. So there's there's the tasting practical part, there's the theory part, and then once you finish the exam, there is a, like a 10, 12,000 word dissertation that you have to write on a topic you have to propose. It's pretty rigorous as well. And it took me about a year to get my paper passed. So there, a lot of people think, you know, you pass the tasting and the theory, you're an MW, but there's a whole nother leg to the journey. So I saw that when I was looking at it, and I realized at this stage of my career, I didn't have the patience to try to go through that. And I thought, boy, that is really rigorous. Let me, let's turn our attention to Virginia, because I really would love your point. You're back here in the D.C., Virginia area. You've been in the business as long as I have. When did you begin to realize that something was happening special in Virginia wine growing and what brought you to that point? You know, I was actually working for a wholesaler called Mems Distributing in North Carolina, Raleigh, North Carolina at the time. I had, I met a guy who was uh, working for 
a winery called Montemain, and Montemain is where Michael Shapps is now. Michael Shapps's wine works. So I, I worked. I worked for two years in that facility. My title was marketing sales director, but basically I was the delivery guy and the tour guide. <laughs> I left the wholesale industry and went to work for this winery because I was just so intrigued with fine wine being made in Virginia. And and the you know it's the, you drive in you drive up to these vineyards and they're just amazingly beautiful. And so I did that for two years. But you know, honestly, Fred, I. Uh, I kind of reached I, I reached a point where I was like, you know, this is interesting. It's a it's really a, an interesting local kind of story, but I, I'm just not sure the industry is ever going to amount to much, to be honest with you. So I, I left the industry and went and did some other things, uh, started a wholesale or, or uh, import business with some other guys. Here it is about 10 years ago. I guess it was back in about 2010. Uh, Jim Law, an old friend uh, of my family. Had had recommended me to Luca Pashina at, at at Barbersville and to David King at King Family uh, to run to run the Governor's Cup and the Governor's Cup wine competition had been going on for a long time. But so I I you know I said well let me think about it and I started looking around and tasting the wines because honestly I had not been paying a lot of attention uh, since I had left back in the you know like mid eighties. I was blown away by how much had changed how much how much better the wines were, how much more kind of broad and, and diverse the wines have become. I said, you know, I, I, I kind of jokingly told David King, I'm really interested in doing that. You know, give me a chance. I, I found myself no longer having them sell me. I was trying to sell them on the fact that I wanted to do it because it was so, you know, just really intriguing to me that so much had changed in such a short period of time. And that's that. That was a, an eye opener for me. Well, boy, that's I find that interesting because that comports with my belief that when I look back, I realize the progress in the last ten years and the last decade has been exponential in quality. Were you an MW at that time when you took over running the Governor's Cup competition? Yeah, yeah, I passed the MW back in two thousand and four. I took over the competition. I want to say it might have been 2009 when I took over the competition or 2010. So I'd, I'd moved back. I was living in D.C., well, in the, in, in the, in the area and, and kind of eyeing what was going on. But, uh, you know, about the same time I took over the competition, Dave McIntyre, who writes the Washington Post, had had contacted me and asked me if I would come do a blind tasting with him and Kathy Morgan, who's a master sommelier and a guy named Mark Wessels who used to run MacArthur Liquors. There was another, a wine writer from Decanter. Anyway, we sat down and Dave McIntyre poured three wines for us. I knew Dave was always banging the drum for, you know, the wines of Virginia and Maryland. And I thought something in here is probably going to be Virginia. And as it turned out, he had poured uh, Codesternel, Dominus from Napa, and RDV. I got all three wrong. I got them completely mixed up. You know, I thought the Dominus was from Virginia. Make a long story short, it it was an eye opener. It was a real epiphany. And I think I kind of reached the conclusion that, you know, wow, Virginia had really come full circle and somebody in Virginia was trying to make world-class wines. He's not the only one, Rutger at RDV, but to kind of be in that kind of mix of, of that kind of ilk of quality wine producers is uh, pretty impressive. Well, I'll tell you my little Rutgers story. When I first met him over a year ago and went up to the winery, 
he was having apparently a staff wine tasting he does once a week. So I was invited to sit in. I didn't know what the wines were. I figured one of his wines would be in there, of course, it was other classified Bordeaux. And blind, I picked his wine as the best wine in the tasting. And it was more of a right bank tasting. So it was the rendezvous that was in there. I had no idea. I mean, so to your point, it was like, it shined as the best wine in that tasting for me. And I went, okay, this is for real. There's something going on here. Continue to confirm my belief that there was an evolution in Virginia, and that's why I came back here. Let's turn back to the Governor's Cup. So you get involved in 2009 and 10. What's the criteria here so the, the audience understands, okay, in order to compete in the Governor's Cup, this is the criteria, and then how do you go about the judging? The criteria is any wine submitted has to be 100% grapes grown in Virginia. You know, we, and we require that because there are wineries, and we'll, we'll talk more about this later, Fred, but you know, there's, there, there are a lot of wineries that just don't have enough grapes to produce, to meet demand. So some wineries have gone to California or other places to source, source grapes and wines, so they have enough wine to meet their, their business plan. But the competition requires 100% uh, fruit from Virginia. Uh, the wines are made in Virginia. You know, it has to be, I think, I think we accept wines that go back four or five, I think five vintages back is as old as you can submit. We require that the wines, and this is really important, we wanted to have any wine that, that was, you know, submitted and wins a gold and makes it into the top 12, uh, what we call the Virginia Governor's Cup case. We wanted the wines to be commercially available. We didn't want we didn't want wines winning these awards that nobody would ever ever be able to try. We've had as many as I think 550 wines submitted in a year. The other thing that's interesting about the competition is that we do it in two stages. There's a preliminary round where we we take say 500 wines and whittle it down to the top 120, and then we bring in. We bring in another set of judges, 12 judges. We, we really taste, trying to figure out, you know, scoring the wine on a 100-point scale, trying to figure out the, the top 12 wines. What's really important is that the, the top 12 wines that make it into this case, the competition then buys 10 cases of wine from each of these producers, and then a mixed case is sent to wine writers all over the U.S. and all over the world a lot. Wine writers are... Jancis Robinson and Hugh Johnson and Oz Clark and Stephen Spurrier, they all get cased in the UK. It's, I think it's done a lot to change the perception of Virginia outside of this area. But the judges I have are either they've done the diploma, they're a master sommelier, they're a master of wine, or they've just had a lot of time in the industry buying wine, judging wine, blind. I mean, we have Michael Franz, who's who wrote for the Post for many years and has his own website? He's he's done it every year. Uh, I mentioned Dave McIntyre, Stephen Spurrier has come for many years. He's a phenomenal taster, and and you know I've had Peter Marks, who's an MW. I've had uh, various MWs and MSs over the years, but the idea is to really have people that aren't going to pull any punches, call it the way they see it, and really determine the best wines in the group and it's it's been a lot of fun to do i mean i taste every wine submitted twice and i make my own notes but i my scores don't really count but i but i do keep an eye on the judges and make sure that they're 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 staying on task and 
One of the things that's also kind of unique about this competition is we submit a full tasting note to any winery that submits a wine, they get a full tasting note on, on their wine. And I think it's important feedback. The wineries don't know who the judges are and the judges don't know who the wineries are. And, it, and, and we keep it that way. But this, this feedback, what I've learned is, you know, these wineries tell you they, they want to hear what you have to say. But honestly, they only want to hear it if it's really positive. Well, no, I, I, I understand that. I'm curious, the origins of the competition, whose idea was this and when did it start? The competition goes back, I want to say it's been going for about 25 years. Not sure who originally came up with the idea for the competition. I should know that, but I don't. Um, who sponsors it? Well, it's 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 sponsored by the Virginia Wineries Association. It's also sponsored by the Virginia Wine Marketing Board, and so tax revenue. You know, I th and I th I think I want to say David King was pretty instrumental in in a lot of the legislation that was put into place. But I'm sure there are a lot of others involved as well. But it was really smart because they carved out tax revenue to devote toward education, competition, promotion. And this is something like, you know, Maryland, I, you know, hasn't, I don't think they've fully embraced this idea. And, and there are far fewer wineries and the state's far less supportive than Virginia has been. But that's really who funds it and supports it and uh, gets behind it. Well, the next question is an obvious one. So your, in your opinion, what is standing in the way of Virginia breaking out on a national and international basis? And by that, I mean, what got me excited about this several years ago, and, and I moved from California, as you know, after 30 years to Virginia because of what I saw here in Virginia in the wine industry, and continually surprised how many people I talk to that I respect in the wine business around the country. And when I start talking about Virginia wine, they look at me or they say, what are you talking about? And then I'll send them some wine and they'll taste the wine and they'll say, I had no idea. You know, and I'd give them a little rib and say, yeah, I know you know everything about wine. You had no idea. What's standing in the way here? Because there's a real quality evolution, and it's almost like a secret outside the immediate area of the Mid-Atlantic. I think what's really holding the industry back to a degree is readily available, high-quality grapes at a reasonable price. Because Virginia's climate is so variable, 2018, you'll you'll hear people talk about, especially in the Northern Virginia area, it was a very, very difficult vintage for, especially for producing red wines, where, and then 2019 has just been phenomenal, and, and I'm hearing 2020 is looking pretty good as well. So I bring this up because the, the risk is entirely on the grower. Now, they're, they're, they're people who grow grapes and just sell grapes and don't make their own wine. And then there are a lot of producers who grow everything that they make themselves. And then there are a lot of producers who really are dependent on buying all of their grapes. In a difficult year where quantities are shorter, quality is not as, as good, you know, you're, you're a little bit vulnerable to that. And I, and I, you know, I used to have an ongoing debate with uh, several winemakers, I won't say who, but their feeling was that we, we didn't meet, need more grapes, we just needed better grapes. I, I disagree. I, I mean, you look at any industry that's been successful, and you need, you need to be able to offer consistent quality wine at least around the $15 mark. 
And I think one of the things holding Virginia back is, you know, the av- average bottle is about $25, $30. When you, when you look at the reds, the whites, the roses, and part of that is there, there, there aren't the economies of scale, but a lot of it stems to this, you know, the cost of grapes. You can go to the Virginia Wineries Association website and download. It's available to anybody. But there's a harvest report that's done every year. You can see what the average ton of Chardonnay, average ton of Cabernet goes for. And it's $2,500 to $3,000 for really the, the median price for a, a, a ton of grapes. Well, and, most, most people don't know what you just said translates to $25 to $30 a bottle. Exactly. I mean, you know, you know better than anybody, Fred, uh, how to do the math. And, you know, Mandavi was probably the first time I heard that equation. You know, you take, you take a ton of grapes. If it costs $2,500, you move the decimal place over a couple spots and, and uh, you're right, 25 bucks. So, you know, I, I think that's the main thing holding people. I, I think there's a lot of really passionate producers in the state. The figure is between 280, 290 wineries is what I'm told. I think there's 30, 40 wineries making world-class wines. And I think there's a lot of wineries that are making good wines. Um, sometimes they make a really, really, really good wine, but they're not quite as consistent. And then there's some producers that maybe need to seek out some professional consultants to help them in the vineyard, in the winery, uh, maybe some investment in winemaking equipment that's just holding them back. And I think what happens is a lot of people in the DC area and from, from abroad come in, they go visit one Virginia winery and maybe don't, they don't have a great experience and they, they judge the industry by that. And Oh, I see first impression kind of thing. Yeah. Well, to vineyard, I had uh, one vintner say something to me that's stuck with me for well over a year. And I love your opinion on this. He said, you know, Fred, some of the best vineyards in Virginia haven't even been planted yet. I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. I would agree 100% with that. I think what a lot of the wineries are positioned where they are for really two reasons. One is that they either they inherited the property or they bought a, a you know a weekend home and they planted vineyards or or it was a property that was in the family and they're just trying to figure out other uses for it because you can't grow you know tobacco, you can't grow corn, you can but it's, you know, they're looking for other ways to make uh, the land profitable. The second reason is that a lot of wineries position themselves within two hours of Washington, D.C., because that's about as far out as you can get and have somebody come visit you, maybe spend the day and get home without having to stay in a hotel. Honestly, I think where a lot of fantastic vineyards are, are, down, are out in the Shenandoah Valley as you go south we haven't even seen those vineyards planted yet. Yeah, I would agree with that statement 100%. Well, and, and what you just said comports with what I've heard from people. They all point to the Shenandoah Valley for several reasons. They say it's, as an ABA, it has generally the lowest rainfall. It's the coolest yeah. climate. And a lot of the soils are limestone. You know, to me, what I'm fascinated with is some of the grape varietals that do so well here in Virginia produce compelling wine that people aren't familiar with. I certainly had no exposure to the Petit Mansang. And when I came here and started tasting some of the better dry Petit Mansang, I was like, oh, this could be really big. I mean, 
Petit Man's saying is, I think it could be what Shannon Blanc is to South Africa. I think that could be what Petit Mansang is for Virginia. You know, you're a little dependent on what Mother Nature gives you every year, but, and, and I'm sure I'll let the winemakers uh, tell you more about how to make it into a dry style. But when you, when you, you know, the beauty of Petit Mansang is it has just incredible acidity, wonderful flavors, but you can make it into dry, off dry, or sweet styles. It is relatively bulletproof in the vin- you know out in the vineyard. It's it stands up to rot and mildew pretty well, and and the the rain that we get late late in the harvest. Yeah, it's an exciting grape. But I tell you, there's a there's a lot of exciting grapes. I I, I told somebody the other day, well, and I said this a couple of years ago at a at the Virginia Wine Summit that I felt like Virginia is experimenting with more grapes than any other wine region in the world right now, and. What I mean by that is, I mean, we have hybrids, we have, we have grapes, we also have, you know, semi-indigenous grapes like Norton. We have, we have hybrids that are doing pretty well, like Chambersan, Saval, and others, Traminet. We have grapes that are being planted here from Spain, from Italy, France, from Germany. Well, yeah, in uh, fact, I know Michael Schaps is bullish on, and I can see why, to not. Tanat is pretty exciting. There's pros and cons to every grape. The pro to Tanat is, you know, it's pretty dark. It gets a lot more, you know, the tannins get a lot softer and riper than they do, say, in France or even Uruguay. The downside to Tanat, though, is it's pretty susceptible to really cold temperatures during the winter. And a few years back, I don't know, 40, 50 vineyard acres got were killed because of of the really cold temperatures we got. So it needs to be planted in a spot that's not, you know, going to get really hit hard with really low temperatures. But now I I couldn't agree with with Michael anymore. And but you look at some of the some of the interesting grapes like Barbersville Vermentino. Is that a stellar wine or what? Wow, it's it's amazing. And and honestly, it's as good as anything coming out of Italy. You know, I've I've always been a big fan of his Pinot Grigio and his Barbera and you know, I think Andrew Jefford came and visited a few years ago. He's a wine writer for Decanter Magazine, and he tasted, he was here, tasted uh, Annette, and her team took Andrew around, and he came away saying he thought that Nebbiolo was maybe the most exciting grape that he tasted here. So who who, who knows? Um, you know, I think Petit Verdot is, is coming on. There's just a lot of, a lot of exciting grape varieties, and but but not just the grapes. It's also styles. You know, we've got people experimenting with petty nats, which are basically sparkling wines that haven't been disgorged, and then maybe they're a little gassy and have some sediment in them. And we have people doing skin contact with grapes like Viognier and Petit Mensang. Pretty interesting things. Well, you're right. There's just a, a wide range of not just wine style, but wine grape varietals here. And to me, again, I think that is nothing more than a real asset for Virginia because you know this and I know this. When you get into wine, your intellectual curiosity can just take you to a lot of places. I've watched people who get bit by the wine bug, just the average consumer, and they don't trade down. They're always looking for what's new. In fact, when I started in retail wine in the very beginning, that was the number one thing every one of my customers said to me the day they walked in the door. Fred, what's new? The consumer is always, what's new? They're always interested in trying something different, a new varietal, a new producer. And I think that could be an asset handled correctly for Virginia in this environment. 
no question. So I got the $64,000 question for you. What was the wine that you had that turned your head and changed you? And you said, oh, I get it now. What was that one wine? Everybody's got that one wine. You mean here in Virginia? And, no, uh, no, just in general, you personally, professionally. Well, the wine that, the wine that was the epiphany for me was a, a red burgundy. I was working, you know, I told you about this restaurant I worked at in Winston-Salem, North Carolina years ago. 1980, maybe, was the first year I was there. And we were, believe it or not, we had a Cruvenet. We had we were doing wines by the glass, and we had a Cruvenet. We were really, you know, at that time, Reynolds Tobacco was in Winston-Salem. And Reynolds owned BV, Beaulieu Vineyards. They owned Inglenook. They owned uh, an auction house. I want to say they owned... Well, Hubline. Hubline. They own, yeah. So a lot of Reynolds tobacco execs would come in and they were trying to taste some of the wines that, you know, they now were involved with. And so we had all these great wines by the glass. And the wine that just blew me away was, it was 1969 Latash, which is part of the domain to Romani Conti. And that wine is, you know, I don't know, if you tried to buy current vintage of that, it's probably a couple thousand dollars a bottle. But at the time, we were selling that for, I, I want to say, $10 a glass. <laughs> $10 a glass for a five-ounce pour. We weren't making any money on it, but people who knew wine were, like, coming to have dinner with us because of it. And, but that wine, that, that wine was the epiphany uh, wine. But the, the wine that really sold me on Virginia, though, was Montemain had made a Merlot. It was... I was just blown away by it. And that's really the reason why I went to work for that winery was how good that wine was. So who was the winemaker of Montemain at that time? It was, it was actually, well, there was two. When I first got there, there was a, a, a young guy. I can't remember his name. He wasn't there very long. But Shep Rouse took over not long after. And Shep owns Rockbridge Winery and has been making great wines down there for a long time. Well, Shep, Shep came in and really took us up another notch. It was interesting. We were making Riesling. We were making Merlot, Cabernet, really, really good Chardonnay. I, I want to say there were only, you know, at that time, there was maybe 30 wineries in the state. Well, as a plug for one of my future episodes, I'm going up to Sea Shep next Wednesday to do my interview. Oh, that's great. Well, he, uh, Shep's an old friend. Whenever I see him, I make a point to go say hello. Um, uh, he's a wealth of information and one of the hardest working people in the industry. Please tell him I said hello. No, I'm looking forward to it. I've been told that uh, I'll have a interesting discussion. As best <laughs> yeah. as best, but, you know. Well, yeah. I'd love to turn attention back to you professionally here. So the Capital Wine School, when did you establish this and what drove that and where are you at today with it? So I started the school back about 12 years ago, the idea was to offer wine and spirit education trust courses. And it became, we, we were for a while doing wine, uh, uh, courses and certifications for the um, Society of Wine Educators. We, we are doing courses and classes for the Wine Scholar Guild. But we also cook up a lot of classes and courses, you know, that don't involve certification or exams, just because there's, you know, especially with this current the situation with the pandemic, people are just hungry to be able to still taste and do things and, and connect with people. And everything's gone online. We do curbside pickup. One of the one of the things that the D.C. government 
did to kind of help. I mean, without it, we'd be out of business, but they, they allowed us to do curbside pickup as long as it was in a closed container. So we break all the wines down into one or two ounce bottles and label them up and you, you come by and pick up your wines and then you, you know, you join us for a tasting online. We've done some really interesting, you know, I was telling you, we did a, a first growth Bordeaux tasting recently. We did a super Tuscan tasting where we tasted Sassacaya and or- Ornelia and others. We've got a champagne tasting coming up. We've got, I'm going to do a tasting on uh, the wines of Saint-Emilion. We're also going to do in November a class on um, defects and faults in wine where you'll pick up a kit of 24 little samples and we'll go through all the most common things that can go wrong with wine, you know, in the vineyard and winemaking, once it's bottled, things that can go wrong, storage. One of the cool things that'll be in that faults and and bounces tasting will be, we'll do, we'll we'll also be showing people what smoke smoke taint smells and tastes like, because that's, that's going to be a big, a big topic for the next couple of years as these wines uh, that are coming out of this vintage start getting, going to bottle and into the market. Putting the tastings aside for a second, are your classes online available to people outside of the surrounding area? I mean, because picking yeah. wine up is one thing, but then reaching a broader audience. People can go online, they can go to the Capital Wine School and get certified and do all that, right? Yeah. We are doing classes for people outside of this area, and we're, we're trying to figure find creative ways to get them the wines probably the less I say on uh, your podcast. I understand, <laughs> I understand totally. Uh, I am familiar with the WSET. You may or may not know this, but we became, when I was running the Henry Wine Group, site number 51 WSET in the world. Uh, wow. Certified. We were the only entity certified west of the Mississippi at the time. And my good friend, and I'm sure you know, Peter Neptune was who con- connected it. and. It was fascinating because we put all of our customer service people and anybody else in the company wanted through the first and second level of WSET. That's interesting. I don't think I knew that. That's uh, that's really that's that great. Goes back oh, quite some time. I think it was established in two thousand and four, if I'm not mistaken. That we, the only site west of the Mississippi. This is a term you'll. Rem- he was called an invigilator. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, that's a the proper British. English term, right? Yeah, it's very British, very British. <laughs> well, Absolutely. I know you're busy, Jay, and I really appreciate your time. And the Governor's Cup is an important piece of what's going on here in Virginia. And I wanted to get some perspective on that. Let's just keep plugging the Virginia story. I'm going to do my best to get this history out there. And you've really put some groundwork around some of the historic stuff I was wondering about. So. Well, thanks, Fred. Good luck with your pot. After concluding that interview with Jay, I realized I hadn't spent as much time as I would have liked getting his opinion on the role of hybrid grapes here in Virginia. So I followed up with him by email, and I'll share with you a condensed overview of what he told me. He stated he felt hybrids will always play a role in Virginia, and with climate change, that role may increase and become more important. It was unfortunate that these grapes have been treated at times as second-class citizens 
as the wines made from Sebel Blanc, Vidal Blanc, Chambersen, Chardonnay, and Traminette can be amazing. He's had Chardonnays that were identical to Chablis and Chambersen that was like really good Cru Beaujolais. The Grape Norton, when it received careful winemaking and bottle barrel maturation, can be outstanding. Well, I have to concur with Jay. I've become a big fan of certain Savoie Blanc, and I had a Norton the other day from Ducard Vineyard that just turned my head. It was that good. So I'm really glad I followed up and got this on the record. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Fine Wine Confidential Podcast, where I go on the record with Jim Law from Linden Vineyards. It's a fascinating interview. Subscribe to this podcast. Hit that button right now. Always. Any comments, send them to Fred at finewineconfidential.com. Follow me on Instagram. You can always go to my website at www.finewineconfidential.com. See you in the next episode. at Fine Wine Confidential Podcast by Jason Shaw at audionautics.com from his copyrighted song Acoustic Shuffle under Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. I hope you enjoyed the show. Mm-hmm.